I guess that you'd have to call me one of those teary-eyed, sentimental type of persons when it comes to the thoughts of being grateful for being raised in the United States of America. I do not believe that being patriotic is blasé, that is past, that is no longer necessary. I believe that in spite of the fact that I'm to love all the other nations of the world, I should be grateful to God that I was raised in the nation I was raised in, received the teaching and the truth that I was taught in. And I still have difficulty when I see a flag go by or hear uh, the uh, national anthem sung without feeling a swelling up in my own heart, a welling up of, of gratitude to God. And I didn't intend to preach on this subject this morning, but I was definitely led of the Lord into this subject, and I want to share with you the urgency that we're facing in this coming election and why we need to be much in prayer as we go to the ballot box. May I just ask a question this morning? How many of you are registered to vote? Could you just hold up your hand? Praise the Lord. The majority of you are. You know that the vast, a vast number of those who profess to be believers in Jesus Christ, uh, it's something like 40 or 45%, I believe it was, have never registered to vote. You talk about a silent majority. We're talking about some 60 million people in the United States that profess to be born-again Christians and 60 million others that are religiously inclined. Some 40% of those have never registered to vote, I'm told. That's tragic. That's why the forces of darkness are having their way. But thank God, finally, God has raised up leaders throughout this nation and has burdened their hearts with the urgency of this hour. I'm thoroughly convinced with them that this is going to be one of the most crucial elections our nation has ever seen. The next four years, if it goes one way, can spell a binding up and an ending of many of the freedoms of the church of Jesus Christ. But if it can be turned around now, God will give us more years to continue to preach in the freedom that we've had in the past. I'll talk more about that in just a while. I want you to turn with me to 1 Timothy, the, the second chapter. God's Word tells us in 1 Timothy an interesting thing, and I hope you'll just put this back in the back of your computer bank. It's an interesting thing. Most every evangelical Christian I know of will tell me that God recognizes unbelieving political leaders. All leaders that are raised up in places of authority are God-ordained. How many of you believe that? That every man that's in a place of authority right now is there because God has allowed him to be there. Even the unbelieving leaders. And yet the same people will not recognize that God also recognizes another institution, and that's unbelievers' marriages. But He'll recognize unbelievers in places of authority. Now just put that in the back of your, your, of your mind and think about that for a while. It's unquestioned concerning political positions. You see, but all these things, God overrules and oversees in every institution, every organization, every structure of power and authority. 1 Timothy, the second chapter, I therefore exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings. Isn't that interesting in verse 1? It says, I exhort therefore that last of all. He puts precedence there, doesn't he? Priority there. First of all, prayer, supplication. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. I exhort therefore that 
First of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Now let me tell you something. Let's tie those two verses together and reverse that. If we don't put it first, and if we don't find it necessary or important, if we don't set it as a priority in our life, the end result is evidently going to be that we will not be able to have a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Is that proper thinking? He's saying if you'll put it first and and really give priority to praying for those that are in authority, then that we can expect that we might be able to have quiet and peaceable life in godliness and honesty. Contrarywise, if we don't do it, we will reap what we have not sown in that instance, and that is we will not be able to have a quiet and peaceful life. Now we'll see how that applies later on here in the message. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come under the knowledge of the truth. In Proverbs, the 14th chapter, in the 34th verse, the writer of the Proverbs says, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Psalm 9, 17 says, The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all nations that forget God. Again, I remind you what Billy Graham's wife said years ago that if God does not judge in a supernatural way the nation of the United States of America, like no nation has ever been judged on the face of the earth before, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah because Sodom and Gomorrah did never had near the light that the United States of America has had in turn from that light. We're in a crucial period, and I believe it with all my heart. That's why we constantly are hearing spoken today by Christian leaders, Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will what? Heal their land. Now I'm one that believes our land needs to be healed like no nation has ever needed to be healed. Not, I realize there were more godless nations in the past that had gone to deeper depths in the past, but they didn't start from the high heights that we've started from of God's truth and God's word. The Lord laid on my heart this past week the book of Esther. And as I was thinking upon that book, he just seemed to just lay out point after point after point for me to share with you this morning and make the comparison as to what's happening in our nation today and what God's answer for that situation might be. Now, the book of Esther is a very unusual book because, first of all, the author is unknown. Some people feel, well, it must have been Mordecai who wrote it because of all the details that are in it, but no one knows for sure who the author is. God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther. In fact, it's never mentioned in the New Testament. The book of Esther is never mentioned in the New Testament. And yet it is part of the canon. It is inspired just as every other book of the Bible is inspired. And it has within its contents a message of divine intervention in a time of crisis for the nation of Israel that was beautiful. The Jews were in captivity during what was called the Babylonian captivity. Judah had gone off into captivity because of disobedience to the Lord. And... Uh, while they're in Babylonian captivity, you remember the story of Belteshazzar who uh, had uh, turned his back on God and God said he's going to judge him and send Cyrus, the uh, Persian, the Medes and the Persians together came against the Babylonian empire and conquered them. Remember the story where uh, the prophet came in and the writing handwriting was on the wall by the finger of God and they said, Mene, Mene, tinkle you farson, uh, thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. And the king began to tremble and his knees began to rattle and knock together, the scripture says, and he was really afraid. And God did that very night judge him and overthrow the Babylonian uh, nation. And the Medes and the Persians took over. 
And when the Medes and Persians took over, a king by the name of Ahasuerus, how would you like to have a name like that? Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus was king of the Persian Empire, and uh, that was during approximately 485 to 464 B.C. And the book of Esther tells us in the beginning of it that they were having a long-standing national celebration. For six months, the king had all of his 127 princes there in Babylon with him, and he was showing them all the glories of the kingdom. And then for the last seven days, they'd had a drunken feasting orgy. Music and dancing and lewd dancing in that day, as it were. And uh, they were all uh, really feeling right on top, you know. If they didn't, they'd just take a little bit more gas to get a little bit higher. And... uh, In the midst of all of the the, the things that he was doing to try to impress them, in his drunken stupor, he suddenly got an idea. I know what, I'll really put a cap on the whole thing. I'll call Vasti the queen and have her come do her dance for them. I don't know what was involved in that, whether she had a special dance she did for her husband, the king, or what, but he wanted to call her to come down to that big banquet hall filled with drunken men to dance. You know, I've seen a lot of women whose names were Esther because of the Bible name Esther, but I wonder why we haven't had more girls' names Vashti, the queen. Because here was a woman that no matter what the cost was, she had principle. And she told the king something that was a no-no in that day. You never did that to the king of Persia. She said, no, I won't come down to that room filled with drunken men and dance for you. And as an end result of that, Scripture says that the king was very much embarrassed and insulted in front of all of his princes. And he said, what shall I do to this woman? He said, I know what I'll do. Banish her from my sight. I'll never see her again. Put her in exile so she'll never see me again as long as she lives. And that's what was done to Vashti. But we never hear of her. What a woman. Even though she made no profession that we know of of following after the God of, of all creation, yet there was a woman with principles that would not do what she was supposed to have done there for the king. Scripture says then they started a national beauty contest. Maybe that was the first one that ever started. I don't know. That national beauty contest where all the beautiful women of the kingdom were brought together so the king could look them all over and see which one he wanted for his queen. And a certain one by the name of Hadassah was chosen. You say, no, it wasn't. It was Esther. Well, Hadassah was her Jewish name. And her Persian name was Esther which means a star. And, uh, of course, if I told you that I was going to talk to you about the book of Hadassah, you wouldn't have understood what I was talking about this morning. So uh, her name was Esther, the Persian name was Esther, and the Scripture tells us about her cousin and foster father, whose name was Mordecai. Evidently, during the uh, captivity, when the Babylonians went down and conquered uh, Judah, her parents must have been killed during that time, and so her cousin took her on as her foster father and brought her in the, in the captivity to Babylon and cared for her. So she was, she was the most beautiful in all the land. She was chosen by the king. And then the scripture goes on to tell us that there in the book of Esther that there was a certain man who was over all the princes of the land. Even as Joseph was just under Pharaoh, a man by the name of Haman was the chief of all the princes directly under the king of Persia. Now, I know all about this man, Haman, because when Beverly and I were in Minnesota years ago, in fact, it was about 19 and a half years ago when Jeffrey was on the way, uh, I sang in a musical on uh, the book of Esther, and I was Haman. I got hanged every night for seven nights. I'm telling you, it was no fun. 
But uh, I know all about this fellow Haman. And the scripture tells us there that he was prime minister. And everywhere he'd go, everybody would bow down to him and just worship him. And uh, anything he commanded, he could have it at his fingertips. But as he walked along, he, because he was a godless man, there was one certain man that would stand outside the king's palace. And when Haman would walk by, everybody else would be groveling on the ground. And this man would be standing there just watching him walk by. And this aggravated Haman something terribly. And that man's name was Mordecai. And every time he'd come by, he'd say, I'm going to find out, find out who that guy is. I want to know who he is. So they came back and said, he's a Jewish fella. And uh, he was brought out in the Babylonian captivity. His name is Mordecai. And they gave him all the information on it. And he says, I'm going to get him. In fact, in one place he said, uh, yet all of this availeth me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. Just aggravated him. Every time he came out of the king's gate, everybody else groveling on the ground and here Mordecai stands. And so he began to scheme, and he went to the king, and after a long time he said, King, there is a group of people in this nation who have come in from the captivity, and they're, they're lawless, they, they stick with different laws than what we have, and, and they're unfaithful, they're worthless, they're no good. We literally need to destroy every one of them. Get rid of them. Well, the king didn't go into all the details and find out about it. He said, well, whatever you think, Haman, you go and do it. He said, well, I'm going to have to have 25,000 talents of gold, etc., etc. Take whatever you need, just go and do it. So he said, well, let me write out an edict. And he went back and he had his secretary write out an edict that on the 12th, the 13th day of the 12th month, that all these Jewish people would be destroyed. Every citizen around could go and kill the Jews, and whatever Jews they killed, they could take their property over and have it. Wonderful, wasn't it? Esther 4.1 tells me the result of that little edict that went out. It said, And there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting, and weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Motivated to prayer, weren't they? <clears throat> and then uh, Mordecai, when he found out about it, or Esther went out to have, sent one of the maidens out to talk to Mordecai, and they came back and said, He's all covered with ashes and has a bunch of gunny sacks wrapped around him, and he, he's just in bad condition out there. She said, Well, go find out why. She was kind of protected there in the palace, and so when she, they came back out, they went back and, and told her, and she came to Mordecai, and Mordecai told her exactly what was happened. And he said, if you don't do something now, if you don't go to the king and stop this, we have had it. And evidently her first impression was, look, uh, I, I don't want to become involved. i got things going pretty nicely here. I mean, you couldn't have any better here. I'm the queen, and I... he said, all right. He said, there's going to be problems. Listen to verse, chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Think not thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? The Living Bible puts it this way, Esther, if you keep quiet, God will deliver the Jews from another source. In other words, but your house is going to be destroyed. He said, and, and, and this is something I, I think that this is the message that God spoke to me on. There are a lot of Christians say, well, we don't need to become involved in politics. God's going to work it all out. God is going to always see to it that there's a remnant in his church. God's going to always see to it that his message goes on no matter what. But in the meantime, many Christians may be stopped in their ministry for Jesus Christ until God raises up someone else if we don't do what we have to do, where we are, when we can do it. And when you read the New Testament, you don't find any place in there where it says, go out to the polls and vote. Speak up and let your standards be known. Of influence those that are in political office. Do you know why? Because they didn't have votes back then. 
It was a king. The king would say, do it. You'd say, yes, sir. He'd say, jump. You'd say, how high? On the way up. We are a blessed and privileged nation to be able to have an influence on our leaders as to who our leaders would be in the polls. And we've let that blessing go down the drain. Consequently, we're paying a price today. He said, now, Esther, I know you can just let it slide. We'll die for it, which is not that great. But he said, God will still raise up someone later on. But do you happen to realize that God may have just placed you there? Do you think he gave you that great beauty just so that you can let the king enjoy you? He put you there for a reason, for right now. Look at Esther's response in the 16th verse of the fourth chapter of Esther. Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast for me. I wonder if they all came. Go gather all the Jews together and tell them we got, they better fast because I'm going to go before the king and see if God will do something about this. I'll bet you some of them canceled a lot of business trips and vacations and whatever. I just imagine that most of them were there, don't you? I don't think you got the arguments they had in the New Testament. Well, I married me a wife or I bought me some horses or I planted me a crop or whatever and I can't come. And fast for me and neither eat nor drink three days or night or uh, three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. Now you see back in that day when she said she was going in before the king, that was a traumatic experience because no one ever came before the king unless the king said, go tell such and such to come before me. And if you walked into the presence of the king without him asking you to come in, if, you were the, if I were the king sitting here and somebody opened that door and walked through and I didn't know who they were, I had not called them, automatically, without him holding out the scepter and allowing it to happen, the guards would kill them right there at the door. They wouldn't let them come any closer because that's the way many, of, many kings had been assassinated. Somebody would open the door and shoot a bow and arrow and hit the king. So when that door opened, the guards were on stand immediately. So she knew when she opened that door, her life hung by a thread. So she said, everybody get together and you pray. I'm going to go before the king. And she went before the king and the king accepted her into his presence, held out the scepter. And she said, he said, what, what can I do for you, Esther? She said, oh, king, if you'd be so gracious as to come to my house, you and Haman, if you'd come to my house for a banquet, I'm going to have a dinner and I'd like to ask you to come to my room and, and uh, so we can just have some stuff together. Then I'll tell you at that time. Very wise. She didn't know if the fool speak of his whole mind, but the wise man holds some of it back. And so she didn't say anything right then. And they went that night to the uh, banquet. And uh, when they got through, I don't know whether it was bad cooking or what, at the same time, all the Jews were fasting and praying. Uh, but the scripture says when the king went home that night, he couldn't sleep. When he went back to his own chamber, he couldn't sleep. And he was walking back and forth, he called his scribe and says, get my scribe up. Bring him in here. He says, go find the records of my reign and begin to read to me from my record of the things that have happened to me since I've been in office. I don't know why, but I just sense like you're supposed to read something to me tonight. So he started reading, and as the scribe began to read, he said about two years ago, Mordecai saved your life. What was his name? Mordecai. Well, what was ever done for this man that saved my life? He saved my life and nothing was ever done for him? Oh, I've got to think about this. That man needs to be rewarded, so how can I reward that man? I've got to think about that. And just about that time, in the middle of the night, one of the servants came to the door and said, Sir, there is a man, uh, Haman, is standing outside the door here. He wants to talk to you. He wants to swing Mordecai from the top of that gallows. Everybody's going to see that no one gets by without groveling before me. Turn to Esther, the sixth chapter.
This is really, if you want to get humor sometimes, the humor is right here in the Word of God. In walks Haman, and here was the king thinking about, what can I do for Mordecai? And he turns to him and says, what can the king do for a man that he really wants to honor, Haman? Oh, he said, well, let me, let me think a bit about it, that king, and, and, and let, let's see, and I'm going to get more honor than ever before. Look in the sixth chapter, verse beginning with verse 6. Here's where he says, So Haman came in, and the king said unto him, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, To whom would the king delight to do honor more than to myself? And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delighteth to honor, let the royal apparel be brought which the king useth to wear, and the horse that the king rideth upon, and the crown royal which is set upon his head, and let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man with all whom the king delighteth to honor, and bring him on horseback through the streets of the city, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor." Then the king said to Haman, Make haste, and take the apparel and the horses thou hast said, and do even so to Mordecai the Jew that sitteth at the king's gate. Nothing shall fail of all that thou hast spoken. The Jews were fasting and praying. Boy, the next morning Haman had to get the horse and get all these garments and put them on. Mordecai set him on the horse and walking through the street, can you see him? This man is an honor of the king. We're to exalt this man. Give him all honor and all praise. And he was just grumbling. When he got back, the scripture says he hurried to his house and he ran up and he says, Boy, this upsets me. Oh, I've got to get ready though. I've got to go to the banquet because Esther's, Queen Esther's got a banquet for us tonight. You know, I'm the most important man in the world beside the king here. And then I had to do that horrible thing with that Jew today. God's people were praying. So he quickly got dressed and Got his aftershave lotion on and headed for the banquet. When he got there that night, Esther told him the story. She said, There's a wicked man who has plotted in this nation to have me, Mordecai, this man that saved your life, and all the others destroyed on the 12th month of the 13th day. He said, Who had done this horrible thing that would try to kill someone who saved my life? She said, about that time Haman was trying to find two couches to crawl under, get clear back against the wall. The scripture says he just literally cowered and fell to the floor and shook all over. And, and the scripture says that she says, this wicked man right here, Haman, plotted to have all of our people killed and, and he allowed you, it caused you to put your sign, your signet ring to that edict. And it's going to happen on the 12th month, 13th day of the 12th month, O king. And the king turned to Haman and began to really rail upon him he called in his guards and had Haman taken out. And what do you suppose happened to Haman? He found out how tall that gallows was. King had him taken up and had him hung. And that 75 foot gallows. And God's people were praying. Do you hear me? God's people were praying. God's people were praying and fasting and seeking God's face. And he turned everything around. And the word of God says he turned all the property that Haman owned over to Esther. And he brought Mordecai in and gave Mordecai the place that Haman once stood in. Glory to God. God's people prayed. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And men got serious with God and prayed and God turned things around. Now, I, I haven't got time to give you all the specifics, but I'm going to just give you a couple of the ideas and understandings, uh, my understanding of why it's such a crucial thing. One of the last signs of degradation in any society is when sodomy begins to rear its ugly, nasty head. 
Now, you've heard of it as homosexuality and lesbianism, but I call it sodomy because that's what God calls it. It's sodomy. That's why they named it was named after the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And one of the you read any history of any nation in the world in the past, and you'll find out the last step on the ladder was sodomy when it became popular in this nation. And it is spreading like wildfire through our nation. It is now being allowed to go into the schools as with teachers. It's now being the president of the United States has now signified and declared that there will be no distinctions whatsoever. You don't ask them if they are a sodomite, if they're going to get an office in, in Washington, D.C. and in the federal government at any time, nor can you hold them out because they're sodomites from any of the high secret jobs. Judges are being placed in judgeships who are totally sympathetic with sodomy today in the United States. Our freedom is being taken away from us. It began so gradually that most Christians are unaware However, the pace is accelerating and soon our freedoms could be gone. What can I do, you ask? Christians must pray and stand against the increasing number of government bureaucracies such as HEW and IRS, which are usurping more and more power. We must band together and support bills which will limit the power of government. We must urge our congressmen to enact laws which will get the meddling fingers of government out of our private lives. Christians, wake up. Defend our God-given rights while we still have the opportunity. The philosophy that is now being promulgated in the halls of Washington, D.C. by IRS and HEW is that our children are wards of the state. These are not your children. They belong to the federal government. They know better how to raise them than you do. If you mistreat them, they will come in. And, of course, the year of the child, whether you know that or not, was fostered upon, foisted upon us by the U.N., by a communist organization coming out of communist countries, the year of the child, and child rights are being preached. To where today, if you want to see what's happening, go over to Sweden and you'll find out that they have laws there now that you cannot spank, physically punish, or correct, or even raise your voice strongly to your children. The children have rights. Those same laws are trying to be passed here by humanist, liberal congressmen and senators in Washington, D.C., and the bureaucrats are just filling in all those offices and bureaucracies like termites in wood. Consequently, they are able to harass our churches today. Those that are on the radio, those that are in television with radio broadcasts and television religious broadcasting tell you that they are being harassed from every direction today, being threatened by letters that if you say anything more about this, we'll come down on you very heavily and you'll know it. They want to keep the Christian church quiet until it's too late. I believe with all my heart that the reason they are trying to emphasize children's rights so much and to get laws passed for children's rights is so that they can transfer the authority of the children from the parents over to the federal government who will be responsible for protecting those rights. And they can come in and when you have violated one of those rights, they can take that child away from you and say, now this child is not yours, it's a word of the state, we'll take care of this child from this day on. Now it's happening so quickly that we are just standing here like we're in a stupor. I believe we have to teach children their responsibilities. God says to rear them up and teach them their responsibilities, not their rights. Once they learn their responsibilities, that will bring a revival. You teach any group that what their rights, quote, are, meism, and you're going to have rebellion. Teach them what their responsibilities are. Bill Gothard said that. Teach them what, the re what their responsibilities are, and you'll have revival. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Respect your parents. Honor your parents. Walk before your parents and before God. Parents, love your children. Teach your children. Rear them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. 
But the government says, no, that's not required, but we'll take care of the children. They're trying right now to establish federal children's care centers, child care centers throughout the nation that will be federally run. They're telling our Christian schools today that they must hire as professors anyone who qualifies academically. Whether they believe the same or not is not important. They said because uh, they get federal subsidies. If you get any federal subsidy of any sort, we'll control you. And even if that doesn't work, our hiring practices will get you through the hiring practices. But you have to hire certain ones. We have to use our, first of all, our privilege to vote. I believe if we fast and if we pray and do everything we can, that God will turn it around. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. But you see, I believe that as a Christian, you and I have a privilege, not the church. You and I as Christians and citizens of the United States have the right to say what we believe and why we believe it just as much as the humanist does. The only trouble is, many times we've just said, well, God will take care of it. No, God won't take care of it. God wants us to become involved and God wants us to pray and God wants us to express our position. And then he can begin to work. He puts them up and he puts them down. And I'm asking God to do a work, a miraculous work in these next few days that this nation can turn around and we can begin to see freedom. Things loosen up as far as the church being able to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you something. I want to see the sodomites on the defense. I don't want to see the Christian on the defense. And the, the, the government has always said, oh, be lenient, be, be compassionate. And they always say that until the other group gets in the majority. Then they say, now you shut up and stay in your place. And I think it's time for us to say this far and no further. God says it's an abomination in His sight and we'll put people in office that agree with us. And laws will be established to keep it that way. I'm convinced about that, whether you know it or not. 